I was beaten on the legs because the young German assessment wanted to see me cry or scream, and I never screamed. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the trouble like us. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Welcome to our first bonus episode of Season 3. In previous seasons, we have had a bonus episode out every Friday. This year, we're only having them every so often to bring you the best stories. Keep subscribed in your podcast app and follow us on social media to know when an extra episode like this one drops. We begin our collection of Season 3 bonus episodes with a truly remarkable story. The World War II experiences of Philip Maisel. Philip is a survivor of the Holocaust. He lived through multiple labour and concentration camps. Today, he lives in Melbourne and records the testimonies of fellow survivors at the Jewish Holocaust Centre. I had the honour of speaking with Philip about his experiences during World War II, his views on Nazi Germany, and his reflections on the genocide. Today, I'm in the Jewish Holocaust Centre in Melbourne, Australia, speaking with Philip Maisel. Philip, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Philip, tell me about your family life growing up. I was born in Poland in 1922, in a town, Vilnius. It's a capital of Lithuania now. When I was born, it was ruled by Poland, and it was called Vilno. It was called Jerusalem of the Lita. Jerusalem of Lithuania. Yeah. Why? Because we had a lot of famous Jewish writers living there. It was a very cultural city. The population was about 200 people, of which 60,000 was Jewish. Would you believe that we had about three Jewish newspapers in a little town like that? All the prominent Jewish uh, social workers or political identities would come to Vilna to try to influence the population in a certain way to be Zionist or to be left-wing communist or just opposite, to be a revisionist party, right-wing party, and so on. I had a comparative very pleasant childhood. My father belonged to the middle class. We went on holidays, went to a very good school. I lost my mother was of, I was 10-year-old. My father remarried with a single purpose, to provide us with another mother, we called her Chocha. Till the war, we had a very peaceful, very pleasant life. I was one of the three. I had a brother who was six years older and a sister, Bella. It was a twin sister who was born 20 minutes later. So you're the older twin? Yes. How did your birth mother pass away? She had a solitary. It's a disease which should be killed by taking a certain dose of poison. And they gave her a too big dose. That's awful. It is awful. My main hobby was reading. I think when I was about 10 or 11, I went to the school library 
And my only dream was to read all the books which are in the library. There was about 2,000 books. <laughs> How did your family react to the rise of the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s? About two weeks before the outbreak of the war, the papers wrote about the Molotov and the Ribbentrop Pact, which was the pact between Germany and Soviet Union. The non-aggression pact. Non-aggression pact, yes. As it happens, we didn't believe that Germany would win the war because the Germany would have a strong army which has to be supplied with food and ammunition and so on. And the Polish soldier would just fight easily, eating about um, a kilo of tomatoes daily, and <laughs> they wouldn't have many needs. Actually, when the war did break out, I tried to join the Polish army. I went to get a gun. I got a gun for actually, which was still from the First World War. It was a, a military rifle. There was no ammunition either for it. So, so within a few days. You could have got an empty gun. <laughs> yeah. And you were 17 at this point. Exactly. Poles were very heroic, you see. I, they felt that the biggest achievement a person could achieve is to give their life for the country. When the war broke out, the Soviets occupied Vilna and gave Vilna back to Lithuania. So for eight months, I was living in Lithuania. I had to learn Lithuanian language and I had to pass my matric in Lithuanian language. You had grown up speaking Polish, Russian? I was speaking at school Polish, at home Russian. So you to pick up a third language? Actually, children pick up very easier language. There was white Russian at school. I had German. I had Latin, by the way, at school as well. <laughs> Hebrew. It wasn't uh, difficult to learn a different language. It was quite common. The other war broke out, and Russia, for eight months, being I was belonging to Lithuania, only Russian built their military bases in Vienna, very heavy aircraft was landing every few hours on the airport and uh, while Poland wasn't prepared to the war, the Soviet Union was very, very well armed and prepared for it. After eight months, the Soviets occupied Lithuania and included, included in the Soviet Union, it became the sixth Soviet Republic. <laughs> Our official language was Russian and the history of the world was differently interpreted. What is interesting is that when I was at school, I learned the Polish, the history as a Pole soil. When Lithuanian occupied Vilna, all the Polish heroes became traitors. <laughs> Strings were renamed in the heroes of Lithuanian army who occupied Vilna. Your previous school syllabus became fake news. That's right. And then when the Soviet Union came in again, and learned a completely different history. Are you quite skeptical at all of this? And I mean, you know what's going on, or are you confused, or? I wasn't confused. I find it rather funny that the names of the streets are four times changed, <laughs> and the history differently interpreted. I wasn't cynical, now I'm much more cynical. But it sounds such an obvious tactic, and everyone your age and older experiencing it would roll their eyes, like you say, and laugh, yes, the streets are changing again. You don't believe what they're shoving down your throat. Actually, it was very, very important to be flexible, to adjust 
herself to the condition, particularly in Soviet Union, where it was dangerous to talk in the street loud or express any dissatisfaction with the system. It's quite interesting that uh, I started to work newspaper shop and I belonged to the trade union. And whenever there was a national holiday, Russian national holiday, there was a meeting and one of the present people present would stay and suggest that on this particular day we'll work free of charge for the Soviet Union. And everybody had to say yes. Couldn't object. <laughs> Let's jump ahead. Tell me what happened in your town in 1941. For two years we were occupied by Soviet Union. In 1941, actually, German declared the war on Soviet Union. Soviet Union didn't expect it. Soldiers were starting to leave, to escape on foot, even on, from Vienna. Some of them couldn't even get any transport. I, my sister, and a friend of the family, Maria Grudnitska, were trying to escape to Russia. My father trusted the Germans. He didn't want the Germans be as cruel as they were and stayed behind. We were walking on foot for three days, but the German tanks were faster and were overtaken and had to return to the city. I met my father on the staircase when I returned. It was only three days. My father was gray. He looked 10 years older. We promised one another that we'll never part again. And then on the 1st of September, what happens? On the 1st of September, Germans created the ghetto. The ghetto was a quarter where only Jews had to live. As it happened, they came to our place, they gave us 20 minutes to pick our belongings, and we had to march towards the ghetto. We arrived to the ghetto late in the afternoon. The front gate of the ghetto was locked, and we were told to go around to the other gate, which was on the other side of the ghetto. When we arrived there, this gate was locked, and we couldn't get in. So we all had to sit down on the pavement, waiting, and see what happens. Opposite, there were Lithuanian troops, soldiers and volunteers watching us. Working with the Germans? Working with the Germans, and uh, just waiting for the nightfall. They would take and would be shot in Ponare. It was a little forest, eight kilometers from Vilna, killing fields. As it happened, a friend of ours noticed a window opened from the, one of the houses from the ghetto just behind us. And we climbed in through the window to the ghetto. We found ourselves in a dark passage. We went up to the staircase. There was a dark room. There were about 10 of us. The Lithuanian soldiers noticed us and started to follow us. We heard the footsteps on the staircase and stood very close to the walls and nobody could see us. Lithuanian soldier came in, didn't put a touch, just went around the wall, feel our bodies. Reaching out with his hand, grasping at the wall. Towards the wall, it was a small room, just went around, felt our hearts pounding and called out, nobody here saved our life. Actually, there are many cases which of a similar, similar type where my life was saved by complete strangers, decent people. Did your sister avoid the ghetto? The sister went with me to the ghetto, my father, my sister, and this friend, Maria Grudnitska. Over the roof, we climbed into the ghetto. The ghetto was overcrowded. In a room, there was so many people living, as many as they could 
accommodate on the floor. If somebody from the adjoining room had to pass through the room, he would walk through other people because so crowded it was. Before the Germans invaded in September 41, there were about yeah. 5,000 people living in the ghetto, and that increased to 55,000. That overcrowding was that absurd. Exactly, exactly, yes. Can you describe life in the ghetto for me? When the ghetto was created, the Jews felt like they relieved because previously Jews were taken, just caught in the street, taken to prison, and shot later. They assumed there would, there would be some more safety in the ghetto. Jews were working for the Germans and they assumed that they, the labor, their labor is required. But it was just opposite. Every few weeks or something, months, Jews, actually there was Judenrat. Judenrat was the Jewish council in charge of the ghetto. Was asked to deliver to the German 2,000 Jews, 3,000 Jews. There was a mass murder. So despite the fact that um, it was hunger and uh, was very crowded. Disease. In Vilna, in charge of the ghetto was Jacob Gens, a Lithuanian officer who could save his life because he had a Lithuanian wife. He was a Jew, but his wife was Christian, Lithuanian. And he voluntarily went to the ghetto because he hoped that he can save some life in the ghetto. But uh, the Germans were deceiving him. Like, for instance, they would come and ask for 5,000 people. He would bargain them with them and give them only 2,000. He would assume that he saves the life of 3,000 people. But what stopped Germans to ask for 5,000 or a bigger figure? You see, it was, the ghetto lasted almost exactly two years. Very humanitarian ghetto. What I mean is that it was hunger and everybody tried to bring some, people were walking outside the ghetto and they were trying to bring some food from outside the ghetto. At the ghetto they were checked and some food was discovered, and this food was later given to the people who didn't work outside the ghetto and who were starving. So there were public kitchen for people who were really desperate, so, which is very rare. I think that was the only ghetto which could do it. I was working on the rival line initially. The German rival lines are narrower than the Polish and the Russians, so we had to bring them to the German standard. Later on, a friend of my father said that they are looking for an automotive electrician for a very important German institution, which repairs German cars, HKP it was called. And my father said, my son is an automotive electrician. So yeah, I saw cars in the street and I learned about electricity at school. <laughs> You're very qualified. I was qualified, but I was fortunate. In the street, Strashuna Street in the ghetto, there was the biggest library Jewish library in Europe. You were happy then. And I could learn there, find books about automotive electricity in the workshop. Friendly workers helped me to initially to get acquainted. But after six months, I was a qualified electrician. The Germans started to liquidate the ghetto. So exactly, almost exactly two years after the ghetto was created, in '43, I was deported to Estonia. It's incredible. As you said, the ghetto existed for two years, rampant with starvation, awful conditions, disease, street executions, and just general maltreatment. And then the occupying force decide enough's enough, liquidate it. But you survive. 
How many others do you think survived? So actually, when the ghetto was liquidated, there was about 14,000 Jews still alive. Out of the 55,000 you started 50,000. Some were taken to the Jewish cemetery, where some were shot and some were sent to different concentration camps. I was sent to Estonia because Germany discovered shale rock, rock from which you can produce oil. And they brought about over 2,000 Jews from the ghetto to Estonia to mine the rock and build a superstructure, refineries and so on. How were you picked to survive? Was it luck or was there a method to their selection? Partly luck, partly due to my father. He was very smart. He bought me a pair of boots of a French army soldier from the First World War. <laughs> and I had boots. A hard labor came, yes, in Estonia. It was called Overy. There were about seven or eight different camps. I was assigned to the camps called Kivioli, and um, I had to assemble barracks. We were still living in tents, and I had to assemble barracks. And I always hoped that maybe one of the cars which delivers the wooden parts will break down, and uh, I will repair it and become a modern. But it came differently. Uh, one day, every barrack had a leader because I was actually in a part, I was in a resistance and I was arrested with other boys who were in the resistance. Our leader was one of the prominent resistance fighters. And when the, one day two assessment approached the leader of the tent and asked if there are any auto mechanics. So he asked who did work in the garage. Next day I worked in the garage. He asked me if I can change the tire. I couldn't. So I just was, didn't answer. But he said, oh, look, what is the question? And he sent me. And this saved my life because I joined a garage which traveled all over Estonia repairing cars. So at night, I slept in a concentration camp. During the day, I worked in the garage. Are you working with other Jewish prisoners? Are you working yes. with and Germans as well, or just other yeah. prisoners? Yeah, I was working with the Jewish and German prisoners. Mind you, there were about four or five Jews and the rest were Germans. Just because I wasn't a qualified automotive electrician, I didn't know that there are things which you're not supposed to repair. So <laughs> I did repair them because instead of spare parts, we used cars which had damaged. I did a little bit of sabotage. What kind of sabotage? Germans had very big trucks, which had big starter motors. The starter motor was actuated by a relay. A relay helped the starter motor to start. There was a certain distance between two points in the relay and a magnetic force usually close the points. In cold climate in Estonia, the magnetic force was too weak to close them. So the only thing I had to do is to make the gap slightly smaller. I made it so small that if the track would start to run and get very warm, the starter motor will burn out. And that's very hard to trace back to you. It was very hard to trace back to me, but usually the track got stuck on the roads in Estonia. Some partisans could take advantage of it. <laughs> did your role in the garage mean you did not receive as harsh treatment as other prisoners? So actually, I have to says now it's very, very important that even in the garage, they were all members of the Nazi party. But some were very, very human. I was not allowed to read the newspapers and I 
there was a German who was spread the newspaper on the bench and let me read the paper and change, turn the pages as I read it. At Christmas time, one German got some cake from the family and he shared with me. What was very important that it gave you the feeling that you are a human being because the main aim of the German concentration camp or hard labor camp was to destroy the, uh, how could I say? Your spirit, your... The pride of the person to let him feel that he's half human or even less. So you had some friends in the garage, people that recognized you as human. They were not friends, they were just humans. They felt, yes, he's a human too, and he deserved to be treated like a human being. Because generally in a labor camp, they beat you and um, beating was very dangerous because once you couldn't work anymore, they simply got rid of you. They killed you. Did you get to interact much with others in the camp that you were living with or not much because you were in the garage? As a camp, we were very, we were only at night. The main people I interacted with was people I was working with, with uh, Jewish people and even with some Germans. This fact that even in the Germans, the Nazi party were decent humans confirms the thing that there are a lot of bad people in this world, but there's a lot of good people too. And if we have to tell stories about bad people, we should also tell stories about good people as well. When we were evacuated from Estonia to Germany, because the Germans were losing the war and so on, and were put on the tracks, a German soldier stood and cried. His name was Foster, like Foster Beer. <laughs> Do you know why he cried? He was a human being, and he was sorry that other human beings are being killed just because they were born Jews. For all the good people you met through this, the German who shared his cake with you, the one who let you read the newspaper, the one who cried watching you all on the trucks, knowing the horrors that were awaiting you. What were some of the darker Germans there like? What were some of the harsher moments you witnessed? The harsh moment? German had statistics. Thousands of many people were supposed to die in the camp. They had a quota. A quota. If not enough people survived, they were taking completely healthy people and killing them. Um, Estonia wasn't as bad as lighter concentration can be German. Well, let's talk about that. In August 1943, you're moved to the Stutthof concentration yes. camp. Yes. Did you get to continue using your trade to remain in your captors' favor? I did not. I worked, did physical labor very often. I had to collect some branches in the forest, which they used for heating. And uh, I was beaten on the legs because the young German assessment wanted to see me cry or scream, and I never screamed. The harder I beat, <laughs> the more stubborn I was. Tell me about the sleeping quarters you're staying in in this concentration camp. What are they like? We came to Stutthof, were very hungry, completely exhausted, and they put us in a barrack, which originally was prepared for German assess. So imagine marble floors, beautiful <laughs> bathrooms, there were beds, but beds were not prepared. They were small beds where two people slept in one bed. We could only stay in barracks during, at night. Before we went to bed, we had to lay down in front of the barracks, which was 
a German or a couple would come and with a hose and spray the water all over us. So if we went to bed, we were completely saturated with water. The difference between labor and concentration camp is the concentration camp when we came, they undressed us completely naked, disinfected us, and let us run to a gray building, which we knew could be a gas chamber. And I was running to the gas chamber, a fellow next to me asked me, do you think they will gas us? I thought they will, but, <laughs> but I told him, no, 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 let him be happier another few minutes. And when we came there, it wasn't a gas chamber, it was a shower block, and they were putting cold water and hot water. <laughs> I've been to the concentration camp in Dachau, and the way it's set up, you could feel like you might not know until the last moment. I can only imagine the terror you all would have been going through as you approach that building. What's going to come out of the faucets above us? Water or something more sinister? So you get the shower, which is fantastic. Yeah. This is something, again, that was a shower, and when you left the shower, we were throwing people something to wear, like boots. I got very old boots, and I remember I had very good French army boots. Yes. <laughs> they took it away, and I hid the, in my in the boots some photos, family photos, because the boots were big. I had some rags, and under the rags I could put some photos. They took it all away, and they gave me a short woman's or young girl's coat. Imagine we're exercising on in a yard in the country, and I saw a fellow wearing my boots. And I came to him and said, look, these are my boots. Please give it back to me. He said, they were, they were your boots. Now they're my boots. So I said to him, look, if somebody would be wearing your boots, would you ask him to return it? He said, yes. And would you expect the fellow, if he's a decent fellow, to give the boots back to you? He said, yes. So try to be a decent fellow now. And he gave me the boots back. One of my biggest achievements. <laughs> That's a win. You've got to take the wins when they come. At night when you're in the dormitories, would you guys just sleep because you're exhausted? Or what would you yeah. talk about? There were two of us lying in the bed. And because I never knew what would happen tomorrow, I usually was asking the fellow I was sleeping with what he was doing. If he was a gardener, I would ask him what is very important for the gardener to know. You know, different types of soil, different type of vegetables you can grow on zone. I was trying to learn something new which might help me later on to survive. So you really had that outlook of what's going to help me survive. Are you thinking life beyond the camps? So actually, that was still in Estonia. We usually had very little opportunity to sit down and talk. But one day I was sitting with my friends and we were talking. Usually the subject was food. I can understand why. <laughs> you can understand why. But this time our chances of survival were very, very small. And we promised one another, if one of us survive, even for five minutes, he will tell the world what happened to the Jews and other people in the concentration camp. And just by working here, I've worked here already over 25 years, I fulfilled the promise. And we'll come back to your work at the Holocaust Center a bit later on. Let's go back to Stutthof and talk about the conditions there. It's estimated there were 110,000 prisoners in that camp, of whom 65,000 died. 
Yes. Typhus epidemics in 42 and 44 winters, and of course the gas chambers for the weak and the sick. So basically, I went through the typhoid in Estonia when I was sick at very high temperature, and I wanted to commit a suicide because I didn't think if I would survive, I'll be a normal person. In concentration camp, where people were dying, they were walking skeletons who called them Muslims. And the only thing they could think about was food, bread, bread. But I survived. I was only three weeks in Stuttgart. My sister was the same time in Stuttgart, my sister Bella, but we didn't know about one another. But Maria Grudniska, the friend of my, of the family, recognized me and said to my sister, I think your brother is still alive. That must have really warmed her heart to know that you were hopefully still alive. Oh, yeah. It was extremely, extremely important. You've told me of some happy moments and even a few funny moments throughout both camps. This might be a, a bit of an absurd question, but throughout both the camps... It's not an absurd question. Yeah. Well, were there any small moments that gave you hope? It was in Estonia. We're getting a piece of bread every morning. It was like a sandwich, but it was a, just a piece of dark bread. I was breaking this piece of bread in two halves. One I was consuming in the morning, and one I was eating before I went to bed to sleep. For the simple reason that if you were hungry, you couldn't sleep. One morning I got up and I found that I left a little crumb of bread in my pocket. It was smaller than half of the finger. (laughs) Smaller than your fingertip, but it was... And I was so happy. (laughs) This looked like a comedy. I was working in a garage, and when I was evacuated, the final stages, I was sitting at the back of this truck, which had all the spare parts, and was traveling from the last hard labor camp to Revel to a port. On both sides of the road there were swamps, and there were German soldiers who were dying and asking for help. And I was waving, not, no, I'm not going to give you help. Look at it, I'm prisoner. We stopped very close to a hospital, a German hospital where German soldiers were lying. There was not enough care. There were loaves of bread lying on the floor. And I could pick up a whole loaf of bread. Actually, I picked up two because I hope that my father will be evacuated too for my father. In the kitchen, there was an army kitchen which cooked uh, lunch or tea, whatever it was, because the soldiers were sick and couldn't eat. I had a proper meal. First one in years. Yeah. Another case, it was already spring, and on Sundays the Germans made us work. But the work consisting of carrying, they divided a group into halves. One had to bring, to carry rocks to one side of the square, and the other group had to bring it back as it took from. Very practical and meaningful work yeah. you're doing. Yeah, just to keep us occupied. But exactly at 12 o'clock, the Germans, Germans are very exact. The Germans said, yeah, you can have a rest. And then I down on the snow. It was spring. And under my hand, I could feel that under the snow, there is already grass coming up. And I started to chew this grass. And as it happened, a wind brought a piece of old newspaper and it was the recipe of a cake. And I imagine that I'm lying down in comfort and eating cake. 
Here is a very important factor that it wasn't only physical ability to withstand the difficult problems of survival, but the mental state, the psychological attitude of the person was very, very important. If you could derive happiness from small things, you had a bigger chance to survive. You also spend time in some other subcamps of Stutthof, Dotmergen and Frommen. They were not subcamps, they were Stutthof is in the north of Poland, it's very close to Gdańsk. And in Württemberg in southern Germany, they discovered similar Shylock and they sent us already as experts, people who survived Estonia, to Dotmergen. Dotmergen was the worst camp as ever. There were swamps. In Dautmergen was approximately 2,000 people, and 60 people were dying a day. These are German statistics. I had to do some physical labor to carry rival rails for the rival lines, for small rivals, and so on. And uh, at this stage, I really, when I went to bed, I hoped that I would get up. In the morning, in the morning, I hoped that I would leave the lunch, because lunch were getting some soup <laughs> and lunchtime I hope that I will survive till the evening I had a friend who got a job in a garage and he recommended me as automotive electrician and as it happens we had to walk to the garage every morning from 6 o'clock till we actually till light at night we worked but what was important in the morning, there was a roll call, like in every concentration came a roll call. And it sometimes lasted hours because they counted the prisoners. And if they, if they assumed that somebody escaped, they counted again and they counted again. People were really dying during the roll call. Once the roll call lasted so long that the foreman of the garage where we were working went to the to see the camp what happened because we didn't arrive to work. And he complained about it. He complained to the Lagerführer, the German fellow in charge of the camp, and they decided they would transfer us to the other camp, to Frommer. Frommer was a concentration camp, but not for Jewish people, but for political prisoners. There were Frenchmen, Dutchmen, German, People who showed some resistance to the German might. Somebody said something unpleasant about Nazi party or somebody didn't comply with all the rules. Was this camp better conditions? Heaven. <laughs> How so? The rations and food were satisfactory. The fellow who was in charge, the capo, was very friendly. He had a clandestine radio and every Sunday night he told us the lightest news, the progress of the war. There was a shoemaker who repaid my, my boots for, I think for seven cigarettes I had to pay. But I didn't smoke. And sometimes when I was working, the Germans were happy with the work. They would give me a cigarette. Cigarettes then were valuable currency in those kind of camps. So, yes, they were very valuable because... Um, Good for you, you didn't smoke. I didn't smoke, actually. Again, there's something very important that sometimes people give away bread for cigarettes. You get one slice of bread a day in some of those camps and they would give some of that precious life sustenance for a cigarette. Uh, yeah. Wow, that amazes me. Tell me about April 1945, the death march. Okay, so three weeks before I was liberated, before April 45, took us on the death march. 
were walking at night, because during the day the Allied planes, actually British planes, were superior to the air and were shooting people walking on the road. Not people, but were always walking in squadrons, you know, so they would assume that they were part of the German army. You look like a platoon marching down the road, yeah. Yeah. And again, our guards were people in their 50s or 60s who couldn't already serve in the army. They had to carry hand grenades in the bags. The bags were very, very heavy, and they forced us to help them to carry the bags. But you couldn't resist, because if you would throw a hand grenade, a few thousand people who were walking in the museum would be killed, would be shot. So there was no use trying to resist. We were walking for three weeks. Actually, it was raining. We were always wet. On few occasions, we were walking during the day. Which, what is it? again important to mention, that one day we stopped in the forest. The German who was leading us lost contact with the headquarters. They didn't know what, where to continue. Two men arrived on a motorbike and in the group, and they told the Jews who were together with the, there were only 16 Jews and the rest were all Dutch and the French and so on to step forward. And would you believe everybody stepped forward? They ordered us to do it twice, and eventually they had to give up. That warms your heart, doesn't it, that in those great times of desperation, humanity just bonds together and looks after one another. Yes. That's beautiful. Yes. Yes. Were the Germans afraid and edgy by this point because the war is going quite catastrophically wrong for them? People believe in what they want to believe. They don't believe in facts. They select only news which suits them. Some things don't change. Right. So actually, I assume that if the German had news that they lost the war, they didn't try not to believe in it. That some kind of a miracle might happen, they might still win the war. Hitler still may save them. Yes, yes. On the 27th of April, we, little, we reached a little town called Ostrach. And like in every little town, there was a market. We stopped at the market and suddenly... The guards disappeared. I don't know how this happened. They just decided to bolt for it. Yes. Prior to it, we heard already artillery shooting and so on. Within a few minutes, the French army arrived. French army arrived in American tanks and British uniforms. Because French didn't have enough uniforms. That's confusing. But they had food. <laughs> and they naturally, it was very hard to communicate because no. Many people spoke French, but they really gave us food. There was a, often a danger for freshly released Jewish prisoners of captivity that they would overeat once they were liberated because they had access to surplus food. But would that have applied to you because the standards were a bit better and from it? I was fortunate. I have a comparatively strong stomach. But the fact that um, we did get some food, but not enough to make us sick. It was well rationed. That's good. They would give you a piece of bread or a piece of cheese or... You'd been separated from your family for years. Of your loved ones, who had survived? When I was liberated, one of the biggest problems which I encountered, how to come in touch with my family. Knowing the conditions in Europe, I hardly could believe that somebody survived. But I still hoped. I lived a little village in Ballingen, where I was working in the garage as an automotive electrician for the French army. Later, I was working for UNRWA, 
UNRWA was United Nations Refugee and Relief Administration. On one Sunday, a fellow approached me and asked me if there are any Jewish women in Bellingen or in the vicinity of Bellingen. And by working in UNRWA and knowing exactly who is living in this district, I could say no. But he spoke Yiddish and I was speaking Yiddish. And I had a very strong accent in Yiddish. And he remarked to me, you're speaking such a funny Yiddish. I know a girl in the camp in American zone, I was living in the French zone, who speaks with the same accent. And I said to him, and I know the name of the girl. Bella. Exactly. And I found my sister. Because I was working for the UNRWA, they gave me permission to go on a bike to Landsberg, it's a camp in Bavaria, very close to Munich. And I found my sister. I brought her back to French zone, to Ebigen, and she started to study, continued study medicine in Tübingen. A French surgeon came to the garage and asked, is there Palameiser, who called me Fala at home, Palameiser here? It was my brother. So within, it was still in September 45, I found two members of the family. And my life got some meaning. And your father? My father perished in Kloga. Loka was a camp in Estonia. They didn't evacuate, which they killed Jews in the most cruel manner. And this is one of the biggest tragedies in my life. When I was young, I was arguing with my father. My father was right and I was wrong. And I was never able to say sorry, dead. When did you migrate to Australia and why? I migrated to Australia in 19. 19- 49. I arrived here 19th of January 49. I left Germany eight weeks before. I had an uncle here in Australia. From my brother, I got his address. I wrote him a letter and he invited me to come to Australia. He had a very good heart. And Bella came with you? Bella came with me. I took care of Bella all the time. You're a good older twin. How did you find your experiences in the war affected your day-to-day life in the years and decades that followed? Very much so. Whoever went through the experience of being hiding or even, but particularly in concentration, came to affect me very strongly. I can't throw away food. Some stranger helped me to survive, complete strangers. And very often I try to repay to help somebody who is complete stranger. Naturally, I feel it's my duty to tell what happened due to the Holocaust. It will never happen again. As you see, not only again, the Holocaust, the genocide, irrespective of what country it happened, should be prevented. You made that promise to your bunkmate in the camp, and now you're doing it. In 1990, you became a volunteer at the Jewish Holocaust Museum and Research Centre here in Melbourne. Now you're the head of the testimonies department. Tell me about your work here. The work is extremely rewarding. First thing, you feel that you do something of importance for the Jewish nation, except for humanity even. Two, I learn a lot from the people whom I interview. If there is something which has to give meaning to my life, is a work here. I try to do my best. I have good results. We accumulate 1,800 testimonies. Wow. Those testimonies there of immediate Holocaust survivors such as yourself, and sometimes they're the next generation. Yes, next, first, second, third generation is being put on the hard drive in two forms. In one, it's um, 
compressed so you can put it on DVD in the original form. And you interview across the generations to see how the Holocaust has affected the descendants of survivors as well as the survivors themselves. So the trauma has been transferred. People are not always aware of it. I had a case where a fellow said to me, the Holocaust didn't affect me at all. And when he was leaving, he shook my hand. I said, look, you're lucky you're one of the very few who wasn't affected. We give a copy of the, fellow, of the testimony to the fellow. When the fellow came to pick it up three weeks later, he said, when I came back to the car, I couldn't move at least for 20 minutes. It did affect everybody. And unfortunately, it's a very negative trauma, very negative. It's very noble of you to be exposing yourself. You're not just reopening your own trauma, but you are experiencing so many other people's trauma with them by helping them give testimony. By feeling that I do something useful, I get I know I suffer a little bit later on when I think about it, but I feel the pleasure of doing it is more important than the effects. It's July 2018. How old are you now, Philip? 95. I'll be 96 on the 15th of August. And you're still going strong. You are working here regularly. You are very tech-savvy as well. We've got big camera next to us. We're speaking in a soundproof room with a lot of audiovisual equipment around us. You're doing the work with an energy of someone much younger, but with great zeal and passion. Yes, but I have a lot of people who help me, who are much more competent with computers, much more competent with equipment. But I'm rather coordinator, coordinating the work and uh, provide them with the work. And they're all volunteers. Nobody's paid here. Are there some days you need to go in your car or get home and just sit down and relax or let it leave you when you've heard a strong testimony? Yes, yes. When I go home, I think about the testimony. Sometimes the effect of the testimony is very positive because it has some therapeutic value. People, by expressing the emotion, which they suppressed for many, many years, get rid of it. We had a case three years ago. There was a fellow in Belgium who was uh, reading a book about the Holocaust, got very, very depressed. It became a psychological problem. He consulted a few psychologists. They couldn't help him. Eventually, he migrated to Australia. He married a woman whose friend suggested that he should give a testimony here. The fellow did come give a testimony. We knew that he has a problem. We tried to help him. Would you believe? A few weeks later, I got an email from him. I got cured. I am not more depressed. And I finished reading the book, which I started in Belgium many, many years ago. So, this is satisfactory, very satisfactory. There's a lot of wounds here, but there's also a lot of healing too. Philip, do you have any final thoughts, feelings, or comments you'd like to make? What I feel... It's very important. We're all human beings, and we start, our lives should be so humane as possible. We shouldn't be selfish. It's a privilege to give and not to take. And I wish everybody would have the ability to help somebody. And everybody can. Sometimes just with a smile to encourage somebody to do something. Well, Philip, your story and the work you're doing today to capture these stories is nothing short of remarkable. I'm deeply touched by your outlook, your resolve, and your strength. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you.
Keep up to date with this podcast by going to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. You can also follow us on social media, Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at L-O-T-L pod on Twitter. We will be back next Tuesday with another Australian veteran story. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>